We begin, uh, obviously some people have noticed that the notes, the old set ended at 58 and the new set starts at 60. That's just a cost-saving device because 59 has all the uh, bibliography on it. If you are interested in some of the footnotes that are referenced, um, I can get 59 for you next time for those who are interested. But from time to time, I'll skip pages that aren't really that well-read. Um, some of you, though, probably are interested in the footnotes, and uh, we can make 59 available. No, I'm not trying to hide it. It's just spread the money over longer paperwork. <laughs> Let's uh, bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again that tonight we have the freedom in this country to approach the Word of God, to listen to the Spirit, interpret the Word to our hearts, and to hear how that Word applies in our lives and become subject more and more to your will. We thank you that we have this privilege because of the grace shown to us through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. The notes are getting faster than the coverage of the class, so all we'll try to do is catch up a little bit tonight. Um, one of the things that we want to review uh, about the Exodus event is that this event is the result of what started with Abraham with God's election and God's means of justification. Those two elements constitute the character of how God disrupts paganism because those two truths undercut the foundation of paganism. Paganism is founded on the assumption, the presupposition that man, autonomous man, can rule. Paganism believes, as we've said again and again, that there is no creator. And if there's no creator, then there's just a continuity of being. That is, men are a little bit more intelligent than the animals and the gods are a little bit more intelligent than man but all are part and parcel of the same universe. And that being the case, certain things follow. And, of course, one of the things that follows is that on a pagan basis, as we saw again and again last year, there's the limitations of man's knowledge. He's bracketed in time and in space. No matter how brilliant you are, no matter how, many, how educated you are, you will never escape that box. No man, no woman can escape the box. It's forever an expression of our finitude. And because we are creatures made in God's image, we operate from within the box. But on the pagan basis, apart from the Word of God, in rebellion against the Word of God, autonomous man, mimicking Satan, believes that even though he's limited to this box, he can define what's outside of the box. That he has this mystical power of definition so he can define good and evil. He can define ultimate truths. That's the pagan presupposition. That emanates from pride. That's the uh, manifestation of an autonomous, proudful heart. And that's what underscores paganism. And it's precisely that that's chopped down to size by element number one. It's that doctrine of election where God exercises his sovereignty and his omnipotence over against man's choice and man's power and shows himself to be superior 
and he interferes and disrupts the plans of man. Therefore, when you see how God calls Abraham out of Ur, and God calls the Jews out of Egypt, it's a surprise event. It's unforecast by the, by the techniques of man's reasoning. Man's reasonings would never have forecast an exodus. Man's reasonings would never have forecast this odd trek taken by Abraham and his son and his son's son. So, election forces the attention from man back to God and makes God sovereign and man a little Lord with a little L instead of a capital L. And the second, second element that lies behind all this, justifications we learned with the call of Abraham, is that God not only defines good and evil, but God, toward the fallen creature, brings him into a state where God can have fellowship with him. And because God can have fellowship with a sinner, uh, he has fellowship with a sinner only because somewhere God has acquired a righteousness acceptable to himself that he credits to man. It's not because of some inherent goodness on man's part. And it's the second element that we want to spend some time on tonight uh, on how this shows up. We spent time last week on the first element, how that showed up in the Exodus narratives. It shows up on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is faced with further and further revelation, and he rejects, and he rejects, and he rejects, and he rejects. So every time there's additional revelation, there's more rejection. Additional revelation, more rejection, and so forth. And this escalation, all it's doing is hardening Pharaoh's heart. So it's an irony, because we often think of preaching the Word of God as softening hearts. But we forget that the preaching of the Word of God can harden men. The exposure to scriptural truths can, can set in concrete a rebellious heart. So rebellion, plus the Word of God, minus any kind of redeeming grace, equals cement. So the Word of God never, never returns void. The Word of God always accomplishes one or the other. And that's what we don't often think about that because we get in this evangelical salesman type thing. And if the Word of God doesn't appear to do something, it's because we use the wrong technique. The Word of God causes rebellion to become more and more profound or it induces by a gracious work of God a subjugation a submission, an obedience to it. So, we, we study that in connection with this first element, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Those two mysterious processes. And it was precisely, we said, and this was the thing that's so critical we want to remember from last time, we want to ask ourselves a funny question at this point. Suppose Pharaoh didn't harden his heart, and he, in fact, agreed to let the Jews leave Egypt. Then, what would have been, the, what would the Exodus have looked like? Well, it wouldn't have looked like the grandeur of the Exodus we read in the Bible. It would have looked like a deal had been negotiated between Moses and Pharaoh. It would have been a work of man. It became a work of God precisely because of the rebellion. It was exactly because Pharaoh hardened his heart that gave God the opportunity to show forth his power. 
in a grand and glorious fashion. So the Exodus's grandeur grew out of the rebellion and obnoxious rejection of Pharaoh to what God wanted to do. Had he just let the Jews go, there wouldn't have been all those catastrophes. It wouldn't have been a display of the mighty hand of God. So that was the first element. The second element we come to is, oh, before we go to the second element, one other feature about the first element, the fact that election forces us to be face-to-face -face with God's plan over against man's plan. God is incomprehensible and omniscient, and it means if he is doing the, the, if he's calling the shots and it's his plan and we're finite, we can never understand all the ramifications of his plan. And you know that, I know that, because things happen to us in our Christian lives and we wonder, why did that happen? Or you see it happen to somebody else. Why did that happen? And you know very well, we never really find out why that happens. You, what we do is we trust God's character that he had a good reason in mind. And that's as far as we can go. But the scriptures teach that behind all the mystery, there isn't darkness. Behind all the mystery, there ultimately is light. And behind all the mystery, there is a reason. And I want to track some verses. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 2, um, verse 2, uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. I just want to review something we mentioned last week toward the end of the class, that there is a rational connection between the Exodus and the call of Abraham. And, of course, anybody that reads their Bible realizes that, yes, that's there. I take that. But I want to review this because I want you to see that at bottom, history has a purpose. If the Bible isn't true, then we can't show history has a purpose. And if we can't show that history has a purpose, there's no real sense in studying it. Why bother with a pile of marbles? And it's precisely this as to why I believe that students in school don't feel a hunger to learn a lot of subjects. I don't think the, re I think the reason they aren't really excited is because they really aren't convinced there's anything out there worth learning. There's nothing exciting to learn. The only exciting thing is pop pills or take, do a shot or something. That's the exciting thing. But that's an emotional thing. That's not an intellectual thing. When it comes to reasoning, there's nothing exciting to reason about anymore, they think. And what we have is, in a practical street level of the common man, we have recapitulated what the existentialist philosophers have been saying all along, namely, there is no such thing as ultimate reason. But in Exodus 2, 24, yes, there is ultimate reason. Look at this. God heard their groaning centuries after Abraham, and what does it say the key to history is in verse 24? God remembered his contract with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. For us, looking forward to our future in history, Jesus Christ is going to return, and it's going to be because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God will remember his covenant, and he will once again act in history in a dramatic and glorious way. But his action will surprise the generation it happens in. It will be an utterly unforecast thing. They can't understand this. This is a catastrophe, a miracle interruption. But it's not when it comes 
from the standpoint of God's plan, it was there all along. He has his plan, and he rationally pursues his plan. Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. This is the passage we're going to get into a little bit more tonight. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Every time you see that, that triumvirate name, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are to think of the covenant back in verse 24, chapter 2. Those three names, when you see them collectively put in a clause in the Bible, it's a code, so to speak, for the Abrahamic covenant. So you'll see those three names seem to occur a lot together. Just remember, whenever you see that, it harks back to this Abrahamic covenant. And we could go on verse after verse after verse. We don't have time. If you wish to see that chain of references, it's on page 51 in the notes, first paragraph, last part of first paragraph on page 51. And there I, I, ch I give you the verse chain. And you can look it up in the concordance if you want to. Just look up the word covenant and see how often it occurs. Well, we want to move from God's interference with man's plans to God's ability to render man in such a state that he himself can come with his mighty presence into our lives. Now, the dilemma is seen in a very simple story in Genesis 3. Remember when we studied the fall? After Adam and Eve fell, what were they doing? The next scene that you see in the Bible is they're hiding. Now, who told them to hide? Why is there this hiding all of a sudden? Well, it's shame and guilt. Shame and guilt of, our, of the sinful heart hides from God, flees from God, doesn't want God, avoids God, because the sinful heart feels like, I, you know, I'm not meeting His holiness. And because I'm not meeting His holiness, I'm not acceptable. And I don't like being rejected, and particularly... I don't want to encounter the ultimate rejection, which is my Creator. That's a total rejection. People can reject me, but for my Creator to reject me means I'm absolutely worthless. And so that is too powerful a medicine for any person to take. So on go the fig leaves. And we hide. And we try to pretend we have some value. But the value we're pretending here is our self-induced value. It's our man-made value. But God ignores the man-made value. So when God comes to us and calls to us, as he does here in chapter 3 of Exodus, somehow God has rendered us in a state where we can stand it. And we said last time that the revelation of God's presence, the fact that he can approach sinful Israelites in the Exodus, he comes and he reveals this name, this I Am. This name of God is new, because if you uh, look on um, page 52 of the notes, I'll give you some quotes from Dr. Payne, who had written, was an Old Testament theologian, and he quotes Exodus 6, verse 3. If you'll just turn to Exodus 6, verse 3 a moment. And I appeared, God tells Moses, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, or Lord, or Jehovah, as the English, some of the English translations translate it, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this has caused a problem. 
And as uh, my little quasi-sarcastic note on the paragraph, first full paragraph, page 52, is the old liberal critics and ill-informed present ones who are often found teaching high school and college religious courses understand that in spite of the Genesis text, the name was never used in pre-Mosaic times. And so therefore, all of a sudden now they become literalists. And it's strange, these critics. They never take the Bible seriously until there's a verse that fits their scheme. Now all of a sudden we become a literalist. Now verse, all of a sudden, oh yes, verse 3 is, is literally correct. But because they're not careful students of the spirit of the text, they misinterpret what is said in verse 3. Obviously, God spoke as Yahweh before Moses. Now, the question is, how much did the people know about that name? He didn't make himself known by that name. And we have to realize that the text of Genesis was written by whom? Abraham? No. Who compiled the Genesis text in its present form? It was Moses. So Moses already had the benefit of hindsight, and he knew God as Yahweh. Now, the question is, what does God mean when he says, in verse 3, I appeared to them as God Almighty, but I did not make myself known to them. Now, with this little verse, we're introduced to something that we'll get into later on, and that is the idea of a dispensational progress to history, that God reveals certain things to a certain age, and man and women who live within that age are responsible to the revelation available in that age. But then along comes another age, and God reveals more revelation about himself, and then we're held accountable to a higher standard or more content of revelation because God has advanced his revelation. And here's one of those cases where he did. We said last time that this word, I am, is understood, I am with you. And the burning bush was an example of that, I am, because the fire was in the bush, but the bush was not consumed. The bush being a picture of Israel, the fire is the oppression. And God speaks out of the fire, and he speaks that I am. So God is in the midst of his people when they're being oppressed. They're not destroyed. They cannot be destroyed. It's the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, period. So, the same principle in Old and New Testament alike. But the I am, the word Yahweh, or as it sometimes says in Jehovah, that is the central name in the Old Testament Bible. That is the name of God. Now what we want to do is we want to watch how that code word appears and how Jesus uses it. Let's turn to Matthew 28. Very familiar passage. Quoted oftentimes as the Great Commission. Keep in mind the Jewish context here. Jesus was a Jew. His hearers were Jews. All their life, they had this tetragrammaton, the four-letter word that they would not refuse, they would refuse to pronounce that looked like this. Y-H-V-H, read from right to left. And filling in the vowels, we get Yahweh. 
And what happens, or filling in what we think are the vowels, nobody really knows, but this was the sacred name of God, and it harks back to the birth of the Jewish nation, that he was in their midst in Egypt. While they were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While they were in Egypt, God was with them. He heard their groanings, and he saved them. But now in verse 20, as Jesus closes out his ministry, he drops this little code word in. Now, you read this fast, you won't catch it. But if you think about it, in verse 19, he's already given the sacred name of the Trinity to the disciples. And then he closes in verse 20 with a clause that um, modifies the main verbs in verse 19. And in this clause, he says, teaching them to observe all I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, for a Jew to hear that meant a lot more than us Gentiles listening to that. We take that, oh, he's going to be with a kind of in spirit, you know, no problem there. But that's, it's, it's much more heavily loaded than that. What he is saying is, I have the nature of the God of the Old Testament. This is a claim to deity in this verse 20. This is, it's clever, it's in code, so the careless reader won't see it. But more explicitly than Matthew, John wrote his gospel in such a way that if you remember the prologue of the Gospel of, of John, he says, we beheld his glory, glory is the only begotten Son of the Father, and so forth. John had this insight into the nature of Jesus. Now, several times in John's Gospel, if you turn to John chapter 8, he remembered those days when he was right near Jesus and Jesus said these things. Now, this gets into a big dialogue about Abraham. And in this particular section, they're arguing about who is the real sons, who is the seed of Abraham, so their argument is. <coughs> in verse 56, Jesus drops this very offensive statement. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was very glad. Now, you know, we could spend a couple hours talking about what does that mean? There's a heavy verse. Does that mean that he saw, he looked forward in the corridors of time? When he, was that mean that Abraham actually was conscious of the Messiah? Does it mean that after Abraham died, in Abraham's in paradise, that he saw this? You know, we could discuss all that. But the Jews really picked up on it. And in verse 57, which is one of those little incidental verses that tells you a little bit about Jesus' personal appearance, because Jesus wasn't anywhere near 50, he was 30 at the time this was written. And scholars have pointed out that when they say you are not yet 50, they were probably referring to the fact that he had prematurely aged by the stresses and the strains of his ministry. He looked a lot older than 30, but he wasn't anywhere near 50. You are not yet 50, and you have seen Abraham... And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham came to be, in the Greek, I am. Now look at those verb tenses. 
Something's wrong with those verb tenses, isn't there? Does it make sense to say, before Abraham came to be, past tense? Let's draw a timeline here and look at these, check these verbs out. Here, Abraham came into existence. Notice the two different meanings of these verbs. Abraham came into existence. He was born. This is the present day. Let's put this T0. This is the time in which the, this event happened. So Jesus is speaking at this point in time, and he says, Before Abraham came to be, I am. I am is present, which means it must be a verb operational in present time, but also he was I am before Abraham came to be, so it must have been verb in action in, a, in existence prior to Abraham, which means he's claiming eternality, which means this is a flashing forth of his glory as the God Yahweh. This is so ironic that the Jehovah's Witnesses of all the people on earth with that name Make Jesus not God. When the New Testament is full of these Jehovah codes for Jesus. Let's look at John 14, This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to, to him and make our abode with him. With him. That's the same kind of complex idea. I am with you. You see, it's that Yahweh nature of God. I am with you, just like in the burning bush. I am with you wherever you may be. And then finally, in John 18... In verse 4, verse 3, that dramatic scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when the temple police come up. These are tough guys. They police. The reason the temple police were pretty tough and well-trained, by the way, was because they had millions of dollars worth of money to protect. Remember the Jews in their holidays... People would come and have money changers. I mean, got, that's why Jesus got in trouble there with the, with the money changers. And the deal, they had a little deal business. It was a slick business where what they would do is they would sell you things that you had to have under the Mosaic Law, but it was in their currency. So you had to come from all these different places. Of course, they had to exchange the money. Well, you know that the rate of exchange that was fixed. So these guys were making money like crazy on the side. Lots and lots of money was flowing in that temple area. Who protected them from robbers? The temple police. These are the guys that show up in verse 3. The, the, the priests come out there, the Pharisees, lanterns and torches, and you see they, they receive the cohort, probably Romans, and offices from the chief priests. And so they're, they're reasonably well uh, armed and men that can take care of themselves. Now watch what happens. Jesus asked a very innocent question. Who do you see? Jesus the Nazarene. And all he says in the Greek is ego and me. And what do you notice happens? Jesus who betraying him, standing with them, 
There's a lot of parenthesis, you know, to get the scene just right in our mind's eye. And therefore, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. One of those little tiny observations in the text of Scripture. Can you imagine? I've never seen a Hollywood dramatist do this one in a movie. Here is the spectacle of probably dozens of well-trained guys approaching this one man because the other guys are sleeping. Maybe they've woken up now, but the point is he doesn't have a big training force with him. And all he says is two words in the Greek, ego and me. I am. But it's written in such a way that you can take it two ways. I am he, the guy that you're seeking. Or you can take it in a deeper way that this is the code showing up again. I am the one who was in the burning bush. Apparently it's to be taken two ways. It seems to be an answer to the question of verse 4, but yet on the other hand, it has this deeper, more profound sense that he is the Jehovah that appeared in the burning bush. And in fact, the proof of it is, is these guys fall backwards when it happens. What was this force that suddenly flattened these guys? I mean, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, you can walk to. I mean, it's not, there's nothing, there's a, it's a hill, uh, but I mean, you know, it's not like a 45 degree slope. So these guys didn't trip on rocks. What knocked them over? The presence of God knocked them over. So, this is the nature of God, and what we want to see is that when the Exodus happens, the name of Jehovah, that I am the one who is with you, attains new meaning. And it's this presence of God that shows that somehow, they didn't understand it then, somehow he has resolved the righteousness problem so this holy God can have fellowship with sinful people. Now, on page 53, if you'll turn there for a moment, I'm trying to summarize this section on the meaning of the Exodus. And there's a couple of points I want to make before we get into the, some of the doctrines that follow from this. Um, I think we stressed the first paragraph truth enough. We don't have to go over that. But the second paragraph on page 53, I want to emphasize something. Let me follow with as I read this. The meaning of the Exodus comes from the disruptive separation of God's elect people out from the old pagan status quo. The highest level fallen society could ever achieve. Noahic civilization had achieved a grandeur in Egypt that anticipated the best of the arts, technology, and science of modern civilization. All such effort, while noble and good and revelatory of man's dominion nature under God, is spiritually perverted and limited. Civilization, and this is the key, civilization cannot undo the fall. That's the lesson of the Exodus. The finest civilization in ancient world did not solve the problem of man's spiritual descent. Civilization cannot restore man to God. It cannot ultimately satisfy man in the depths of his heart. It cannot serve as a substitute for the Creator God. The, the meaning of this Exodus event is that God walked out, took his people, and he walked from the greatest civilization the ancient world knew. And why did that happen? Because it was lacking in something. It's not that God didn't like the pyramids. It's not that God didn't like the mathematics. It's not that the Jews, for example, didn't uh, take the metallurgical arts of Egypt with them. Sure they did. They used them to make tools. 
So they took the technology from Egypt, they took the mathematics from Egypt, they took the art from Egypt, they took the language from Egypt, but they left the system of Egypt. They walked out. And the third paragraph at the bottom of that is a sort of a collective thing that we want to see about the vision of the Bible as far as going from Genesis to Revelation. We tend to think because of our isolated state as Christians in our day, because evangelism is one-on-one -on -one and we, we are one individually to the Lord, we evangelize this person, this person becomes a Christian, so forth, so forth. We tend to think of ourselves as individuals, sometimes grouped together, but basically individuals. But what I'm trying to get at here is that for God to complete his plan of salvation on earth, from the standpoint of the original purpose of creation with Adam and Eve, he's got to transform the earth and reestablish man in a righteous civilization once again. It can't be just a, a club of isolated individuals. There has to be a collective solution to the problem. And so in the last sentence in that third paragraph, I say, ultimately we must enjoy his presence publicly and corporately on planet earth. That's the goal of history. It's a powerful goal of history. This planet, not some other thing out in another galaxy somewhere, it is this planet at this point in this universe that man must collectively once again, as the human race, worship God. Saved human race, yes, but... This, it must be restored, what was begun in Eden. Our created homeland and a holy kingdom, a new civilization that replaces completely fallen civilization. It's not true that we Christians don't have a vision for the future. We surely do. The difference is we have another route to get there. Okay. What we are going to deal with then is... Uh, and by the way, the next paragraph is also a commentary. Somebody mentioned in the Q&A last week, gee, we're getting into politics here a little. Yes, we are. What you're going to see in the Exodus and the next chapter is for the lawyers, because then we get into the nature of law. But we are getting into political and legal areas now. Just as last time we got into biological, geological things with Genesis, the Bible always interferes with every subject that you can imagine. It's always buttoning itself into every area. never leaves any area separate by itself. Paganism tries to have its exoduses, attempts at starting new and better societies. However, because paganism casts aside the truths of creation and fall, it has no hope of separating good from evil. Remember, we went back to this diagram and we've shown it again and again. Let's review that. What do we say is a difference, essentially, between, when you get right down to it, what's the difference between the Christian worldview and the pagan worldview when it comes to good and evil? Well, the Bible and the Bible alone says there was time between creation and the fall when everything was good. The Bible says that it was possible to have a physical universe free from sin. In paganism... Good and evil have always been there. Read your mythologies. The gods and the goddesses are as evil as men are. They've always been evil. There's always been this. And because it's always been, guess what? It always will be. On the pagan basis, good and evil never get separated. Because they can't get separated. 
And this is not a philosophic diagram. This is not just philosophy. This is why when we come back to this paragraph here, let's finish. Because paganism casts aside the truths of creation and fall, it has no hope of separating good from evil. Therefore, here's the political ramifications. Therefore, pagan counterparts to the Exodus event, which are revolutions, ethnic cleansings, or what have you, always wind up as disasters. On its own faith, existence of human and natural evil is normal and unremovable. One evil simply replaces another evil. Do you see the difference here? There's some powerful ideas at work in the scriptures. And what it does, it shoots down the old Marxist dream that if we just have a revolution and do away with that institution and that institution and this institution, we can cleanse the board and we can get started with a new, fresh, wonderful society. But it's doomed to failure from the very starting point because flesh just replaces flesh. You've got another brand of it, but it's still flesh. It's still fallen flesh. And that's why revolutions fail. We have lived to see the collapse of one of the greatest attempts in the history of the human race to create a perfect society, and that was communism. We have lived to see the fall of the Berlin Wall. The fall of the Berlin Wall will go down in history as a momentous occasion, probably akin in future historians' viewpoints to the fall of Rome. It was the collapse of a dream that captured the minds of millions of people, poor students in backward countries to brilliantly educated ones in high civilization, Russian geniuses who were just infatuated with this idea. Can't we get society straightened out? And all they did was create the most immobile, inefficient, evil empire the world has ever seen. That's what the flesh does. The desire may be good, but the result is always evil flesh replacing another kind of evil flesh. For example, the communists like to say, and they always did, oh, well, back in the days of the Tsar, we had all these awful massacres. Listen, in the days of the Tsar, the massacres were in the order of a thousand or less. In the days of Stalin, it's in the millions. So tell me about the Tsar. So all you do is you amplify the destruction. So we want to just kind of pass away now from the Exodus as an event, keeping in mind the analog, because in our mind's eye, our imaginations, we want to protect our minds against the human viewpoint of the world. The counterpart to an Exodus is a modern idea of a revolution. You know, the hostage situation right now in Peru? Those people that take those hostages in Peru are part of the old communist group that tried to cause revolution in Peru. What's their dream? Why do they do these stupid things? Oh, they're terrorists. But terrorists don't happen. There's ideas that cause the terrorism. Stupid ideas, yeah. But their ideas, their dreams, their passions, their stories that are told to encourage people to the total worldview. But our counterpart to that is the Exodus. The Exodus is where you look if you're troubled by these things that happen in modern society in our modern day to purge out the confusion. The way to do it is just soak in the text of the Exodus. Fill your mind, saturate it 
with the dynamics of what God did to Egypt. A genuine revolution, a genuine removal and a separation that really resulted in the separation of good and evil. It was a successful one. And it was all done by faith. Think of the two... What two things can you think of where faith was most exercised in the Exodus? Two dramatic events. One was, happened at night and the other happened in the daytime. One of them happened at night when the announcement went out that you put blood on the door to save your firstborn. Now, is there any way you could forecast? I mean, think of that, how stupid that sounded. Blood on the door to save... Oh, my son's all right. No problem. I mean, he had, you know, he had vaccine last week. So, we, we, he's never been sick before. Why do I have to worry about my son? Give me a break. This is just some religious superstition. And in a few hours you found out just how stupid it was. Can you imagine the screams and the horrors? I mean, Cecil DeMille does it good in the Ten Commandments with that creepy green stuff that goes, you know, it goes across the sky and dribbles down the street. I mean, give him, a, uh, give him an A for imaginative effort. But scary kind of stuff. But to apply the blood on the door required a step of faith, didn't it? You had to trust that that would do it. When you didn't even know what was coming. Because it would be different if he did it street by street and block by block. You know, after about four blocks got knocked off, the people in the fifth block, yeah, I guess this does work. Let's try that. And try it. But it wasn't. It was putting blood on the door for something not yet experienced. You see, our salvation is a lot like that. We don't know what hell is. We don't know really what Christ did in the cross as he hung there in darkness. We might have a, a little bit of a feeling of it, but I don't imagine. Our ideas of hell are so far removed from the reality of God's holiness and his wrath that, you know, we just clasp our mouth in awe if we ever got even close to that kind of stuff. He keeps all that off to the side. He just says, you trust my son's atonement. I'll take care of the rest. And the second place was when they were surrounded by Pharaoh's army with their wives and their children. Here they had gone out there. They thought they had freedom. And now here comes Pharaoh, the most powerful armed force on earth. The Egyptian chariot force was analogous today's military to an armored uh, mechanized infantry group because mechanized infantry combines the best of infantry and armor. That's why he called mechanized infantry. And they use it because the, the armor gives the shock and it gives the speed. One of the things that modern battle has done, that's what we got in trouble at Desert Storm, was it is so fast. One man who got the honor, I forgot who he was, he's a tank commander, a captain, got one of the chief awards in Desert Storm because he was leading a tank platoon. I think he only had three tanks. And they were going at night and they came across this ridge line and in his night vision, he always said, he saw about six or seven Iraqi tanks sitting there. Thankfully, the Iraqi tanks were, were all set in the sand. They weren't mobile. His tanks were. In five minutes, less than five minutes, that captain instructed his tank platoon on targeting which tanks to take out. They successfully sh destroyed all the tanks and the battle was done and they started to capture soldiers. And it was all over in less than five minutes.
So here they come, and you've got an infantry standing here, unarmed. And then Moses comes to you and says, Now, what I want you to do is not swim. I want you to stand still. Because today, you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. That's now I did. Whether you're going to trust the Lord for something like that. And that was one of the great faiths. So, from beginning to end, this Exodus event that we're studying is a series of by faith steps. And we want to remember that. It, it, it's glorious, it's grandeur, but if you were in the event, you would have had to have exercised faith at point after point. Well, we want to come now to some of the doctrinal outflows of the Exodus in page 54. We go back to a thing that we studied with the uh, Noahic Flood. And that is the, the way God judges and how salvation and judgment always occur together. Remember with the flood, we've, we went through this. That God, in His judgment, always has a salvation. You can't have one without the other. You can see it in Romans 6. Flesh is crucified. To be saved, there has to be judgment. So, I'm going, I take in this set of notes the five great truths that we learned back with the flood. We repeat those same five characteristics because they show up again and again and again. But one of those truths we're going to expand because now the Exodus is one step beyond Abraham and now you begin to see God has added some material to the picture. <clears throat> in the grace before judgment, we won't spend too much time for this. I think we've made the point... Um, the first paragraph there, I quote Exodus 8.19. Remember the nights, this last couple of nights, we've mentioned how when the plagues happened, at first, the magicians were able to do what? The demonic magicians were able to simulate all of the genuine miracles until there was a frog or something happened, and they couldn't do that one. And those demonic-infested priests and all their satanic blindness recognized something Pharaoh didn't even recognize. And that marvelous quote, those, they say, were the finger of God. Pharaoh, you better listen. This guy's got the goods. And Pharaoh didn't listen. Then in Exodus 9, you see a progress. See that one is a quotation from chapter 8 of Exodus. The next quote is from chapter 9 of Exodus. There's been progress. And by that chapter 9, there were Egyptians who feared the word of the Lord. So, during this period of grace, even in the middle of all these plagues, God was giving a chance for repentance. That God is a gracious God, and He's always grace before His judgment. He always gracious, 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 gracious. He doesn't lower the boom right away. If He lowered the boom right away, we wouldn't be here. He puts up with us, trying to woo us to Himself to a voluntary submission before he breaks every knee to forcibly have everyone bow to his son. The second uh, characteristic that we saw uh, back in the flood was the perfect discrimination that God does. And down the last paragraph in 54, I give you the verses. We covered those in several nights where in the plague of insects, the, uh, the, the plague of pestilence, of hail, of darkness, and death of the firstborn, 
there is not just a statistical approximation, there is an exact separation that goes on between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The ability of God to control his wrath. All of this power, power we can't even imagine. All of this hatred for sin that we can't even imagine. When it is deployed, it is deployed with surgical precision. Perfect discrimination. And finally, in Exodus 11:7, I quote that verse down the bottom, page 54. That's the textual summary of all those plague events. If, you, if this were an X class in Exodus, you know, we're diagramming it all. That would be one of the key verses. Because that verse summarizes all the other chapters leading up to that verse. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay? Another feature. Every time God judges... Okay, the third item, page 55, is the appropriation by faith. Just, just got through covering that. When God works, because he works with justification and, and, and uh, election, he cuts out anything that we can do. And if he cuts out what we can do, then we can only receive it. And we receive it by faith. So salvation scripturally is always by faith, never has been by works. Even in the Old Testament, it was not by works. That was a misinterpretation of the Old Testament by the Pharisees. So faith was always exercised throughout the event. Finally, in, in the fourth point, we mentioned that man and nature are involved, clearly. The surface water of the Egyptian lakes, the Nile, the Red Sea, animal life was involved, meteorological extraterrestrial elements were involved, death itself was involved, physical death. So when God judges, he also judges physically. What evidence do you have, or you, can you remember, from the four Gospels that show even in this strange few hours when Jesus Christ bore the sins of the world, doing this mysterious, wondrous work that we can't comprehend, what physical evidence went on simultaneously during those three hours to show there was a disturbance in the light, in the electromagnetic spectrum around him hanging on that cross? There was a physical disturbance. It was so pronounced that it was called darkness, whatever it was. I've often wondered how far it extended. I've often sought for... Um, some evidence textually in uh, other writings to see if anybody else observed this or whether it was localized to that area around the cross. But there was enough of a physical disruption in the continuity of the, of the physical universe that when this atonement was going on, it bothered nature. So whenever God judges, nature's involved. What evidence do we have that in our own salvation? Our salvation isn't going to complete until our bodies are resurrected. So, these bodies go away, thankfully. And we have a resurrection body to replace it. And all the health insurance companies will go bankrupt. But that will be a grand and glorious day. But salvation isn't finished until we receive the resurrection body. See, salvation in the Scriptures is not just psychological. It's not just spiritual. It's also physical. And that's the thing you want to keep in mind as you go through these texts. Then we come to the one way of salvation, and that leads us to the fact that when God saves, he didn't have five arcs for Noah. He had one ark for Noah. He didn't have a cafeteria of options. 
different styles of design. I, I think Noah's style of design wasn't right, said some of the pagans, so they designed their own arcs and floated them around too. There was only one design because only one design would work and only one design would reveal what God wanted to reveal in it. So we come now to this strange thing that offends people about the Old Testament. Usually if you talk to somebody and they hear you reading the Bible, they say, ooh, that's slaughterhouse religion. I don't like that. The Bible is just one bloody mess down there, and it is a bloody mess. Um, during the times of the great sacrifices in the Solomonic Temple, the blood must have flowed by gallons all over the place. Flies all over the place. It was a dirty mess. Grotesque by our standards. So, we don't deny that this is messy. The problem is, why is it messy? So we want to look at atonement. And then we're going to look, we probably won't have time tonight, but we're going to, uh, as I said, we're getting kind of behind the notes, but that's okay. We want to look at some of these things about atonement. So let's turn to uh, Gen uh, Genesis 2.17. Go all the way back to the creation narrative a moment. And while we're over in Genesis 2, before we get to 17, just take a look quickly at verse 7. That's the picture of the construction of the first human being. And in that picture, you have the body created, then you have the spirit breathed in, and that produces soul or nephesh. Soul comes from the Greek word sukos, and uh, nephesh is the Hebrew. Both mean the same thing. And it's usually freely translated by most translation teams as life. So you have these two components, the physical and the spiritual. God says in verse 17 that you're going to die. Of course, we know from the rest of the Bible it's death in both realms. So the question now is, how do we get living again? And the atonement is the only method that the human race has to deal with death. Because God's justice is restitutionary in nature. You'll see this expression when we get into the law. Life for life. That whatever pays... It must be an equal value. And the heart of God's justice is a restitution in order to restore. So therefore, if the sinner has lost his life, he's minus life. And there's the dilemma. If I've lost my life through death, then I no longer have the assets to atone. So if a life has been lost... I can't self-atone. We've got we're minus on both sides here because on the, this is my life. I've sinned and I've died. So I've lost my life. And I don't have life to give for my life because I've lost it here and I don't have it here. So therefore, the atonement is by nature substitutionary. There's got to be another life coming from somewhere into this equation to make it work. And that's the heart of the blood atonement. 
The idea there is that we have, it's inherently substitutionary. So that's why in the middle paragraph on page 56, the idea of atonement involves halting the death curse after sin has occurred. Atonement, in order to be effective, must involve substituting another life, not under the death curse, but that of the sinner, and transferring the sinner's guilt to the credit of the sinless substitute. Thus, completely useless is the pagan notion of atoning for one's sin by one's own good works or punishment. The sinner has no life to offer on his own behalf. That's the problem. Now, in primitive tribes, there are versions of blood atonement. Animals are sacrificed. Some of these witches groups around the Harford County, you know, once in a while they find some dog that's been mutilated or something. The, the, this fascination with blood, you know where it comes from? Because deep down in our hearts, we know very well. Some, blood has something to do with this. And the demonic tries to falsify that urge. Western men try to suppress the urge. But both are wrong. There is an inner nature, an awareness, that blood must be shed. And think of it for a moment. Every religion that you know outside of Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, name one that deals with a blood issue. Who has an atonement? Now, some of the spiritists go out and uh, uh, sacrifice animals, but that really is a, a faint memory of the truth. So here, right in, in uh, Genesis, we have the curse. In Genesis uh, chapter 2, toward the end, uh, chapter 3, rather, after the curse, you have the first sacrifice. Um, verse 21, Genesis chapter 3. There's the first atonement in history. Not much is mentioned, but God had to get those skins from something. And with all due respect to the Humane Society, the first animals ever killed was killed by God. Not to be down on animals, by the way, because they are creatures made, made for us and we need to take care of them. But God killed the first animal, and he did it because we sinned. So we caused, ultimately, the death of the first animal because we sinned. And this theme continues. And I, I quote various verses on it and so forth. I won't, again, belabor the point. But this idea that blood is necessary for atonement means that during this period of history where this can happen, because this is bounded, there's going to come a day in history when it's all over, when repentance isn't possible when the good and the evil have been fixed. That's why the book of Revelation ends the way it does. Let him who sins, sin always, basically is what it's saying. And let him who is righteous remain righteous always. By that time, evil and good have been separated. And now there's, a, there's an impenetrable barrier between them. But during our time in history, during the day of grace, there's time for repentance. There's time for crossing over. There's time for change. And during this time, that's when the blood atonement works. Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians and you'll see a mysterious thing about the resurrection body yet to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is the central New Testament passage on resurrection, a statement is made by Paul about the nature of this coming body.
He says, uh, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And he describes this and that and so forth. Um, but you read down through that passage and you read about Jesus' resurrection body and you discover the interesting fact that the resurrection body has flesh and bone. Now, don't think of the resurrection body as plastic or some sort of... Uh, titanium, some sort of mentor, it has flesh and bone. Because when Jesus walked around his resurrection body, he looked like a normal person. It has flesh and, and bone, but there's never mention of blood. It seems that the blood is gone. It's fixed. It can't be destroyed. It's immortal. And it can't be atoned for. The day of atonement is over. The day of grace is finished. So, what we want to see as we come to this, the Exodus event in this doctrine of, of judgment salvation plays up the blood more than back with Noah. With Noah, we got the big idea. Now we add to it this blood atonement on the door. And of course, it doesn't take too much of a Christian imagination to imagine the door. There's only, you know, you walk through the door and it's got a door sill and it's got two sides and a top. And if I put blood on this side, this side, and this side, and you connect them with lines, you've got the cross. Kind of interesting. But... The, the blood atonement opens up for us a whole new area of doctrine, and we want to, next time, we'll begin with those three words. If you look ahead, page 57, the three great words for salvation in the Bible. And we, each one of them has its own little specialized meaning. We're going to look at the word redemption, the word propitiation, and the word reconciliation. And the notes that we hand out, if you want to get reading more, uh, I would say... And if you have limited time, if you'll read Exodus 19 and 20 to get started with the Mosaic Law. Father, we thank you for our class tonight. We thank you for the gift of the light that you give us through the Scriptures as to your character and your workings. And we ask that your Spirit illuminate our hearts that we would be faithful and we respond correctly to your Word and your works. In Christ's name, Amen. Someone handed me after the class or pointed out to me the other, last week when we were talking about the exodus and why you've got to believe in a supernatural exodus and when you get in trouble, when you don't, because sooner or later the ability to, to, to fit the scriptures to secular history gets you in trouble. Here's a good example of it. This is the uh, U.S. News and World Report for May 1995, one that had a on the cover. And uh, they discovered a lot of tombs in Egypt. And, of course, one of the tombs they're concerned with is who is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Well, on a liberal basis, the Pharaoh would be Ramesses. Um, this is the one, if you, you know, every Easter now you'll see Cecil DeMille's Ten Commandments and Yul Brynner plays uh, Ramesses in that film. And that's because Cecil B. DeMille was a liberal Jew and he believed that the construction of history forced an exodus to be in the 1200s. Well, you can't get exodus in the 1200s biblically. It's got to be at 1440. So you make it at 1440, it can't be Ramesses, uh, Pharaoh. Well, remember a couple of evenings ago, I, I took you through the dramatic um, uh, dimensions of the exodus and showed how the exodus was supernatural. It repeatedly in the text, it said that never had a thing happened like this before, never will it happen again. I'm trying to show you the dimension of that. And then, Although the text doesn't say it, 
it basically argues that Pharaoh led his army after the Jews into the Red Sea. And it says the, the, the army was destroyed. Um, Pharaoh is never mentioned again, so you infer that Pharaoh was killed. Of course, if you, if you don't accept the text like that, and you're trying to ooch it into secular chronology, you want to keep Pharaoh alive, because all the Pharaohs lived. Well, it's ironic, and I had forgotten this when I was telling this. Here is the mummy of Ramesses. And by bone tests that they've done on this mummy, the guy was 90 when he died. So, obviously, Pharaoh Ramesses can't be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. The Pharaoh of the Exodus lost his life. And, and the Pharaohs led their armies, like we said. I mean, they, they were guys that led, they were the point people then. They weren't guys behind the line saying, yeah, go get them. Um, they were out there with the frontline troops. So, there's an example of what you, why you want to be careful and why we really don't, as Christians, I don't think we have good control of ancient history, and I don't think we have to be intimidated by it, but we really don't know what we're, what's going on in ancient history that well. If the Bible is correct, the, the, what we learn in the university and read in the books is not really kosher stuff. It's um, Something's wrong with it. Any other questions? Yes, Debbie. The Gospel of John, I, I, I use this expression, but I don't mean it in a, in a secular way. The Gospel of John plays with our minds in a way that the other Gospels don't. For example, John starts his Gospel by saying, We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten one, full of grace and truth. And all of these little events that he isolates to write in his Gospel are so loaded. They're literally true, but they're true in a profoundly deep way. But you know, there's one evident, one famous thing that happened in Jesus' life that John doesn't tell us. And all the other Gospel writers do tell us. And that's the event of the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was on the mountain, uh, Mark mentions it, Luke mentions it, Matthew mentions it. That they stood transfixed as Jesus, suddenly his deity began to shine forth. And then it would just as quickly as it happened, it um, disappeared and he was back to normal. It's interesting that John doesn't record that. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that when John selected his material, remember he wrote after the other guys. The other guys had all different perspectives of Jesus. All were true, but they were all looking for different things. And the human nature of the writer of the scripture comes out because John probably was the youngest guy. He was probably a teenager when Jesus was doing his ministry. He's probably one of the younger people, young man, maybe in his early 20s. And he had a whole lifetime of reflection. And he must have thought to himself as he wrote the gospel, what do I want to do in my gospel that Matthew hasn't done in his, that Luke hasn't done in his, and Peter, Mark, 
have done in theirs. And it seems that what must have gone through his mind is the Holy Spirit gave him such a depth perception of Jesus that he took ordinary events and rather than describe the Mount of Transfiguration, which would have argued that you saw his glory only now and then, what John did is he took event after event after event after event to show that you saw his glory all the time, but you had to look for it. So just that little absence of the Mount of Transfiguration is a powerful um, kind of pointer to the fact that John saw Jesus' glory all the time. And this is not to demean Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's just to simply say that they had other things on their mind in their portraits of Jesus, but not John. John gives us the most intimate portrait of Jesus, the real heart of Jesus. And he, John was given the grace to peer into Jesus' heart to the point where he saw his deity in case after case after case. And these little ego amies. Now, you wonder why the other guys didn't report that, like that, that incident on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, um, you'd think that that was, would be memorable. I mean, here are these guys, probably armed, and then they're falling all over themselves because he just said, Ego and me. Maybe it, to them, perhaps they, they got, didn't get a good view that time. Maybe they were back off somewhere, they'd just woken up and weren't too alert. And uh, maybe to them, it looked like the guys fell down and they didn't quite catch the glimpse. It must have happened just, just, just a little fraction of a second. There must have been something whether it was a flash of light, whether it was just a shock wave that came out from him, or something happened, something physical happened that forced these people down to the ground. But um, it, it's, it's, again, it's just the wonder of the Word of God <laughs> to see that it's always God-inspired everywhere you go in it. It's the footprints of God throughout it. How anybody can say this is, this is a work of men has, just really haven't read the Bible very carefully. Any other... Um, any other questions? Huh. Must have snowed you or everybody's anxious to get out. <laughs> okay. We'll meet next week. <laughs>